Praise the Lord. Good song. Amen. I'm very glad they're in church this morning. Yes. I was reading the scripture. It was on just, just now a little while ago. And uh, David said in Psalms 122, and I read verse 1 and verse 9. There's nine verses. So the first verse, it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is David's psalm. Then the very last verse, he says, this is where we find God's good. In other words, the search for God's so this is the good things that God is going to do I like in the beginning of that psalm to the end of that psalm he, he tells the job but he says I was glad when they said to me let's go to the house of the Lord how many know there's just times we need to be in the presence of God in the house of the Lord amongst other believers to get that boost and encouragement this morning amen I got a message for you this morning and um, I was uh, going over this and mulling over this in my mind all week uh, but I just realized, you know, um, I'm going to use some, I'm going to use two examples this morning. Uh, um, well, I'll probably use more than that, but I got two main examples, I'll put it this way. Um, one is where Jesus fed the 5,000. The other time is where David, now I'm going to talk about David and Goliath, but not in the normal sense. Uh, I'm going to talk about David going to Jerusalem uh, this morning and, and share those two things. The title of my message this morning is uh, Seeing Beyond uh, positioning for increase. Um, how many know a lot of times God is telling us we have to see what's not there? I know that sounds like a, a, a thing. Well, if it's not there, how can you see it? Well, we're not looking, talking with the natural eye, but we're talking what God is trying to show us. When we get, see the situation for, for what it is, we don't get the perspective of what can be. I said that way. If we're looking at everything for what it is, well, it's just what it is, uh, this is what it is, then basically we're missing what God can do with it to make it what you cannot see. So to look beyond that. And uh, so I, anyway, I want to share some things this morning. How many know uh, when the devil comes with thoughts, how many's ever had that happen? <laughs> how do you know that, you know the difference between God's thoughts and the devil's thoughts, right? Uh, they're they're going to be opposite. Praise the Lord. But when the devil comes with thoughts of self-doubt, uh, but it's be, uh, he will come with thoughts of, of self-doubt, but because uh, we feel it's, uh, it, it feels like humility. I mean, when we're in self-doubt, we doubt ourselves, it has a feeling of humility, so basically Christians will accept it as humility. Amen? All right, bear with me. But in generally, it's, it, uh, it's what it becomes Instead of humility, it becomes self-focus. Are you here? Self-focus in the name of humility is nothing more than quiet pride. Amen? Helping by this morning? You can smile. It's okay. You're in church. It's a happy place. Praise the Lord. You can smile. A lot of times, it, 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 uh, things that feel like humility, God, uh, you know, well, uh, I was talking to them. Our leadership this morning in the men's in, in the in the, not the men, in the war room, and I was saying I said you know a lot of the problems in our church is what I'm seeing now is self doubt. In other words, we see the task because let's say small church in a small town in you know small island and we we think small 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 and God is saying no big 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 big. How I many know oh, God is always look always showing us a picture that's bigger than ourselves. Because if it isn't, our God becomes as small as we are. Are you here? Yeah. I mean, oh, God is not as small as we are. Uh, so basically, I like to look to the other side of things, look beyond these things. And what God ends up doing with that, he lines us up for an increase. And this is where the increase happens. If we're stuck in just seeing what we see in front of us, that's all you're ever going to see. And you will live a life of shortages of lack, you will live a life uh, uh, beneath the life that God and Jesus had died for you to live. I mean, no, he's crucified, he suffered for us to pay a price so we can live beyond, amen, what we, uh, even beyond what we ask or think, is what the scriptures say. Well, praise the Lord. If you will, if you get your Bible this morning, how many got their Bible? Let me see them. Uh-huh, okay. That's a phone. Oh, it's a Bible, okay. <laughs> Okay, Gene, we'll, we'll, we accept that. I'm teasing you. Praise the Lord. Uh, Matthew chapter 14 says this. this is, it says, uh, uh, well, Matthew chapter 14. How many know the, let me give you the background of the whole, whole session. 
What had happened, it just happened, John the Baptist, which is a cousin of Jesus, was just murdered. He was beheaded. Uh, uh, Jesus has just received the news. Okay, so what he does, he goes off to a place. He says, okay, let's get in a boat. Let's go across the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee. Let's go to another place. And he goes to the other side and he gets out. And no sooner does the boat land and there's crowds of people show up. Uh, it's kind of, the Bible doesn't really say, but I kind of see Jesus trying to get away from things just for a minute. Uh, uh, he's still uh, God, but he's still human. And he's trying to get away, hearing about the news of his cousin uh, being beheaded. Um, the reason he was beheaded was, he, was for the lust of a king uh, in a promise uh, through his lust. Anyway, this is another, this is another story. But he, he uh, is beheaded. So he's listening. He's probably looking for a place to grieve or whatever to get away from things because he's leaving uh, and going to another, another place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When he gets there, all he looks up and he sees, he sees a crowd of people and they have needs. How many know when they see Jesus coming, they say, this is a man that can meet my needs. And they're flocking, they're all crowding down by the shore. And Jesus turned and the Bible says that he had compassion upon them and began to minister to them. He began to give them words of healing. He'd been healing their sick and doing miracles, you know, as Jesus does. And then what happens, it began to, night began to come, or afternoon or whatever it is, late in the afternoon, uh, begins to come, and they realize that basically we got uh, 5,000 men. Now, the Bible talks about men because in those days, that's how they counted. They counted according to men. Bible scholars um, believe that there could be anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people there. If there are 5,000 men, of course, each 5,000 men, if they all brought their wives, okay, that could be at least a minimum of 10,000 plus the kids and everything else there. So we're looking at maybe 15 to 20,000 people. And all of a sudden, Jesus uh, puts out a request, and this is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 16. And Jesus says unto them, saying unto the disciples, he says, um, they do not need to go away because the disciples are saying, let's just send these people away. We haven't ate, eaten, they haven't eaten. Send them home, let them go ahead and eat and then we'll go ahead and eat too. And Jesus says, no, no, we don't have to send them home. He says, uh, basically, he says, they don't need to go away. He says, give them something to eat. Now he turns to his disciples, and basically Jesus is saying, give these 20,000 people something to eat. Well, they didn't carry that much stuff with them. They're figuring out they haven't eaten themselves yet, as we find out from the other gospels. They haven't eaten themselves yet, and you're asking us to feed 20,000 people. The response to that request of Jesus would be the same response we have today. Yeah. All right? I like what it says in Mark chapter 6 in the same account. In Mark chapter 6, uh, uh, out of the NIV version, it, it, it said, uh, he said, give them something to eat. And they said unto him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Now we're going to talk about the cost. Are you here? Okay, that would cost, take more than a half a year's wages are we to go and, this is the question they're asking Jesus, are we to go and spend uh, that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Basically, are we supposed to go ahead and fund this thing ourselves? In other words, come up with the money. Are we supposed to go out and buy the bread, bring this, to give it away to these people? Now, that's what they saw. That was their solution to the problem. Jesus presented the assignment. That was a ministry assignment, in case you didn't recognize it. He didn't change his mind. Because the disciples saw the assignment being impossible, Jesus didn't change the assignment. He didn't say, well, okay, I don't know what I was thinking. Go, yeah, go ahead. Well, we're not going to do that. We'll just send them up. No, he didn't concede to what they think. This is the same thing that happens today. Whenever the Lord presents to us something bigger than us ourselves, something bigger than we have within our resources to carry out, we think, well, ah, that wasn't God, that was just me. Really? <laughs> you often think that big? <laughs> then probably God put, it in, put the question in there. But the fact is, no, he says, he says we see these things. All, the Lord didn't mean that. He meant symbolically. We're supposed to symbolically feed them. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what it, uh, We're a preacher, so we symbolically feed you on the word. So Jesus just wants us to preach longer. Maybe that's it. We just want to symbolically, this is how we break this stuff down. No, he said feed them. He said give them something to eat. 
hmm, it's impossible. There's 15 to 20,000 people. How are we supposed to feed 15 to 20,000 people? If we have the bread, we'd have to go buy it. It's going to cost us a half year's wages. I was thinking, that's pretty cheap. Could you feed 20,000 people on half year's wage of your wage? See, the disciples are supposed to be poor, right? I don't know. Even back, well, maybe bread was cheaper back then. I don't know. <laughs> have you ever seen many wheat fields in Israel? <laughs> I don't think it was the bread or the matzah or whatever they were buying was cheap. I think the fact is, these guys were cheap. Because <laughs> I'm looking at 20,000 people. Jesus had just done miracles for Jesus. These people mean something to Jesus. That's all it's going to cost is a half year's salary? If I was thinking in those terms of natural, yeah, let's get it up. Come on, guys, let's take an offering. Pitch it in. Well, that's just me. You know? <laughs> but Jesus wasn't even looking at that. He said, no, no, no. You're looking at your solution to a problem, but you're not hearing my assignment and you're not asking me what my solution is. And this is what we do. We're looking for a solution that we can do ourselves. And what happens, we're surprised and amazed when God wants to do a miracle. It's tough to believe for a miracle because we're used to helping him out with what we want to do. <clears throat> Right? So what happens is, in a lifestyle that way, we get God reduced to just all that we can do. And that's all I can do. Praise the Lord. We like it so far. Jesus did not change the assignment. I can't say it anymore. I can't impact it any better. But when the disciples say we are clueless on how to do this without going out and buying this stuff and have, paying the money, we're clueless on how it approaches. Jesus still didn't change the assignment. He says, you feed them. Okay, then what I'm going to do from here on in is I'm going to just walk, go through the steps. I'm going to feed them. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how this, where this bread's going to come from. How many's ever been, been there? I don't know how this is going to happen. I, I remember that 33 years ago when he said go to Key West. I don't know how this is going to happen. I didn't really want it to happen. I wasn't really, well, my idea is why I knew it was God. <laughs> but it's, it's going to happen. 33 years later, here we are. We're still, it's still happening. And I'm still scratching my head. How do you do that? <laughs> Where did that come from? What happened here? I, I was there the whole time. I'm watching it, you know. But Jesus said, no. He said, what, what did Jesus do next? He takes what he does next in the scripture he wasn't just doing what he does, and it wasn't just for the sake of food. Everything Jesus did was a purpose, and the purpose he was doing, he was trying to show his disciples how we do this in the kingdom. This is how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God has the power and ability to work beyond what you can ask or think. The kingdom of God has the ability and will work that power through anybody who listens and will obey my voice. Well, I talked about obedience last week. It's still the same. Jesus, right at this point, he's not looking for an argument. He's not looking for a, the a theological lesson. He's not looking for a doctrinal breakdown. He is looking for obedience, simple obedience. I'm not asking you to understand. God doesn't always ask us to understand something. Amen. You don't have to understand something before you go do something. Amen? Amen? Yeah. I mean, know what I'm talking about. How many here have a car? You get in that car, you turn the key. Do you know all the mechanics on how that car works before you get into it? You're telling me that you're going to have to go through a, a school, a mechanic school, so you can break down and understand the workings of an, of an internal combustion engine? and have all the physics that we're talking about. We're talking about bore and compression ratios. We need to know all that before we turn the key. Then how can we do that with God? I, I need a theological lesson here. No, Pastor, you're going to have to give me more scripture than that. You're going to have to sit down and give me a, a, a biblical breakdown of everything we do because I don't understand it. If I don't understand it, I can't do something I don't understand. Ha ha. There you go right there. You're trying to maneuver God with your brain in your understanding and knowledge, and you never will. If God was to appear before you, you couldn't wrap your brain around him. There is nobody on the planet that's that smart. 
Jesus isn't asking you to try to figure it out. He's saying, just do what I told you to do. He says, what do we have to eat? He took that offering, which was five loaves and two fishes. It was a boy's lunch. Matter of fact, it was a boy that wasn't even in the count. Because they only counted 5,000 men. They didn't count women and children. So he took something that wasn't even accounted for in the scriptures and took that offering. Don't even know who this boy was. Where's his parents? How old was his kid? Don't know all those things. You don't need to know those things to know what's gonna, what to do next because God had just told you what to do next. But we're having a problem with the next thing he's told us to do because we don't understand it. <laughs> Does it feel like we're going in circles? Because <laughs> exactly that's what your brain will do, take you right around the circle. And you'll be no better tomorrow than you were today as long as you keep on that same brain path. I don't understand. Good. You're not supposed to. It's not for you to understand. However, how many have done things out of obedience and out of faith and got the understanding later? Oh, now I get it. I, I was thinking back to some of the things, just some of the things that, uh, of the history of this church and how what we went through in, in former years. Why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to confront this obstinate person? Why did I have to d d defend myself here? And then God will say years later, oh, yeah, now I understand. God wasn't trying to make a point. God was trying to build character in me. He was trying to mold the preacher that he really wanted. Not one that was formed by religion, but one that could think outside the box like he does. And this is what God trains us all. How we arrive at it? Uh-uh. We'll be doing this through eternity. <laughs> this is just how God is. So don't try to figure, don't say, wow, I've learned it. Good for you. Live long enough and you'll learn a whole lot more. But his call and obedience has to be leading, leading our understanding. It has to come ahead of our understanding because if we wait for our understanding, you can miss the opportunity. These people weren't going to stand around forever starving. Something had to be done now. Jesus said, you do this now. They should know enough by Jesus now that when he says now. Do you remember how Peter and Jesus and then kind of got together and, 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 and Peter said this to Jesus. He, he says, um, he says, we have fished all night. We have caught nothing. Jesus said, that's okay. Just cast your line and just cast your nets on the other side of the boat. No, you don't understand. We fished every inch of this stupid lake all night night long. If there was any fish here, we would have caught them. See, there's a difference between a line and a hook and a net. A hook and a line or a lure only picks up the hungry fish. A net picks them all up, whether they're hungry or not. Now you get the idea of what revival's all about. It's a net. People wandering, going, oh, I'm doing here, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> you weren't hungry for God. You just found your way in. God bless you. We do. We love you. <laughs> you were caught in a net. God put a net. Does God have a net for you? That's what, you know, the title of my next message should be. Does God have a net for you? <laughs> anyway, so here's Jesus telling the expert fishermen how to fish. I don't know about you, but I know some fishermen, you know, uh, down at, at, at Charter Boat Road there that you're not going to tell them how to fish. <laughs> they're going to tell you a few things on how to fish and they don't care about what your faith is and they fish only a certain way but anyway the, the thing is, is Jesus no cast your side now Peter had a choice he could either listen to Jesus or say you don't know what you're talking about you're a rabbi what do you know about fishing Jesus didn't have to know anything about fishing what Peter didn't know about Jesus is Jesus can command a fish to be where he's at he said, they're not, I didn't command them to be on this side of the boat. I command them to be on that side of the boat. Basically what Jesus was saying, they're there. All you got to do is pick them up. How many blessings does God have right there? But because we're not looking at that spot, we don't see them a lot of times. Amen? Amen? Well, anyway, praise the Lord. So, that's, so what Peter says in that particular scripture, I, was, I, just, I was telling you it was in Luke 5. 
He says, okay. He says, Simon answers him in verse five and says, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Amen. How many fishermen have been there? Praise the Lord. Nevertheless, okay, we're going to humor you. Well, they'll say that. It says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. That is obedience without understanding. What happened? Obedience without understanding brought fish in the boat. In other words, to those fishermen, it wasn't fish that was floating around in the nets. It was dollars or whatever money they used back then. You know, <laughs> it was money because that was their living. Amen. Can I get back to feeding the 5,000 here before they starve? <laughs> so Jesus gives out the command. Now get this. God is going to involve them in the process of a miracle. He's going to involve them. In other words, their hands are going to cause the miracle to happen. Jesus is going to take, and he holds up this five loaves and two fishes. He holds them up, and the Bible says, uh, and, and this is in verse 16, uh, but Jesus, uh, no, verse 16, he says, you go out and you feed them. He says, uh, give them something to eat. Then he goes up, he says, in, oh, I'm sorry, verse 19. Then he commands the multitudes to sit down. He takes, took the five loaves and two fishes. He looks up to heaven and he blessed, blessed. Now, if you break down that word blessed, what it means, he gave thanks. You got the picture? All right, let me paint it a little bit better. You got five loaves of bread. I don't know if there's all matzahs or, or, or what kind of bread, yeast bread, I don't know, whatever kind of, you got five loaves over here. You're looking at a sea of about 15 to 20,000 people. You got two little fish. Now, I was in Israel, and they had something in the, they called a St. Peter's fish. I, I, I like the saltwater version. I'm sorry. I'm just, uh, uh, you know, hogfish and, and snapper, you know, I, I'm all day long. Uh, but uh, and in, uh, Angie and, and Todd give me, a, what was that? A tilefish. It's the first time I ate tilefish. I put that on my list of... I like that fish too. But they have all the, in the Middle East, they have St. Peter fish. Now they get about yay long. Two of those might be somebody's lunch, but it's not going to feed 20,000 people. Jesus took the same, are you, are you following me? He took the f same five loaves and fishes. He blessed them, gave thanks to the Lord. What was he doing? At this point here, stop the film just for a minute. And I'm not, not you. I mean, just, just stop the image in your, in your brain. I'm giving thanks for not enough. Do you, does anybody understand that? Can you understand? I got five loaves and two fishes, and it's not enough for all these people, and I'm thanking God, which is, in a sense, is blessing it. I'm blessing it. For, for something that's not enough. God's gonna make it oh, yeah, we can read the end of the story. That's easy. <laughs> to, oh, yeah, nothing to this. God can do anything. But when we're going through it and we only have the five loaves in the two fishes, oh, God, what am I going to do? There's not enough here. I, I can't pay the rent. I can't pay my internet bill. How am I going to? Facebook, I, oh, I can't do this. How am I going to? I need a new phone. Uh, the iPhone 14 came out. What am I supposed to do, God? I don't have enough fish. <laughs> Go see Todd. No, <laughs> I need more fish. There's not enough fish here. This is what we do. We can read the story and say, oh, yeah, well, we know what happens. Yeah, Jesus takes it. He takes the five loaves and two fishes. He hands them to the disciples. Understand, the disciples were part of the equation for the miracle, the ones that couldn't understand, the ones that couldn't believe, the ones that couldn't wrap their head around it, became part of the solution for the people that needed food. The same thing he does for us. We're only part of a solution that God wants to bring to the earth. There's no way physically possible. There's no way to understand how these things just multiplied. He took the, he blessed them. He took the five loaves and two fishes. He handed them to the disciples. He said, now you pass them out. Everybody sit down by groups of 50 and 100. Now you guys go ahead and start start passing it out. It hasn't changed yet. 
It's still five loaves and two fishes. Did I say that? Five loaves and two fishes. It hasn't changed yet. They reach into the basket. They put the thing in the basket. They reach in the basket. They bring it out. They break a fish off. They give a guy a piece. There is where it starts. They look in. There's two more fish. Break it. Or put a loaf of bread. Break a loaf of bread. Give it to this guy here. And, and, and he breaks it and he feeds his family. And we've got five more loaves in here. It's multiplying on its own. How could it happen? Our brain can't wrap around it like most things God can't. We can't wrap our brain around what God wants to do. Are you here this morning? Praise the Lord. And uh, my phone, I just forgot to set the timer, so I could have been here three hours and you would never know it. Amen. Praise the Lord. So guys in the back, you can clue me how long I've been. <clears throat> Amen. All right. What did I leave off? Oh, yeah. How did it happen? God did a miracle in loaves and fishes, but he did something to the disciples. He showed them how the kingdom works. The next time you say you don't have enough, good. Take that what's not enough and bless it to the Lord and let him make it more than enough. I cannot begin to tell you how many times he's done that right here. I can't begin to tell you how many times. Do you, you realize what you're sitting, I say, say this a lot, but you're sitting in what some people consider an impossibility. You know how many times people have told me this was impossible with a daycare, with a church? This is impossible here in Key West. You can do this someplace else, but not Key West. So careful those chairs. They're not supposed to be here. <laughs> you're sitting in them. I hope they hold up because they're not supposed to be here. According to some people, not according to the Lord, they're supposed to be exactly where they are. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't it amazing? Jesus didn't change the assignment. Five loaves and two fishes. Peter learned real quick, don't question, just do. That God can honor pure obedience. Amen? Amen. How am I doing so far, Jim? Okay, praise the Lord. <laughs> Back in the old days, he used to hold up cards and numbers how long I was preaching. <clears throat> praise the Lord. Amen. How am I following me? Anyway, praise the Lord. Amen. I got looking at this. And Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. Uh, kind of picked this up from, I kind of gave this, I gave you the scriptures last week. But he says this, he says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And I shared with you last week, I said it was commandment is authoritative instruction. If you love me, so the, the proof of love of Jesus is to do what he says. Okay? Basically. How many noticed that in most churches, uh, we hear, if you love me, you'll fast more? No, he didn't say that. If you love me, you will pray more. No, he didn't say that. If you love me, you'll worship me more. All these things are good, by the way. No, he didn't say it. He said, if you give more, that's it. If you give more, you'll show that you love me. No, didn't say that either. What he said was, if you obey me, it'll prove your love. And we want to do everything but. We want to increase our religious capacity we want to pray more. We want to fast more. We want to read our, read our Bible more. Surely the answer is in that. Jesus said, no, just do what I said. Just do what I said to do, period. Amen. It's so simple, but yet it isn't. Amen. Because I don't understand what he wants me to do. Last week I went through quite a few scriptures and I was, I was proving the point of obedience, that what, how important obedience is to obey. Jesus is right here. This is, obedience becomes a proof of your love for me. That becomes a proof. It isn't what you say. It isn't how you pray. It isn't what you fast. It isn't what all the things. Those things are good. And those things have a purpose. Don't let me, don't let me downplay it. Some of you could really use the fast <laughs> to hear God clear. To hear God clear. Come on. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I, uh, this is Fellowship Sunday, too, and, and, he, and the preacher has to go there. He had to mention the fast. He couldn't say, read the Bible more, pray more. He had to say, the fast. Uh, anyway, all the other things. No, Jesus is just commit. Why? Because all the things that we do are good. God would have us do those things, 
but it's the listening to the now in, in, the, in the moment is what he wants us to hear. And then he wants to multiply what is in your life. He wants to increase what's in your life. Amen? Why not go for it? Because if you don't, if you ignore God, ignore his church, ignore everything else, you'll still have more in your life. Satan will see to it. You'll have more misery. He'll come more, still kill and destroy. Hey, John 10, 10 does it for me. Jesus said this in his words, the thief comes but to still kill and destroy. I came to give you life and life more abundant. Okay? So there you, there you go. There's something else beside the obedient part of it. And this is where I wanted to pick up with David. How many remember, this, this, this story is classic. This story, there's not a better story in, in the Bible about something that's unequal. But the fact is, here's David, uh, not the kid that you see sometimes in the picture, more like a teenager, on an assignment that had nothing to do with that. But he didn't do, he didn't take, he didn't stare down the giant by obedience. He wasn't obeying the word of the Lord. Because I noticed that in this obedient thing, there's got to be another element. And David shows us the other element. How many know the story? This 10-foot-tall dude, complete armor. David's got a sling. I don't know if we know a sling, but it looks like this one. I brought my sling. Just in case anybody wants to give me a hard time. Now, if this rock was to come loose and hit you, be of good cheer. Because this rock comes from the valley of Allah, right where David was standing and take on Goliath. I brought it back from Israel with me. So feel honored if this rock was to hit you. No, it's not going to hit you. I'm kidding, teasing it. This is a, this is a period correct um, sling. It's not the one David used. But however, this is the rock he used. No, I'm just kidding. It's not either. <laughs> the, the, getting the, getting this rock is a story in itself. My Israeli brother-in-law, uh, I had him with me. In the dry, uh, it's a wadi. A wadi is, um, the, the water only flows certain times of the year. <clears throat> That's why David could pick up the rocks. It was a dry season. So we kind of know where, about what it was. Come out of the Valley of Allah. Uh, the Valley of Allah just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, uh, I looked and I was researching. I said to my brother-in-law, I said, there's got to be tennis ball size. So I brought a tennis ball with me. I said, because I know, I didn't know what size Dave, rock David had, the Bible doesn't say, but I knew in that period, the Romans often would use at times, uh, and through history, Persians would use slingshots as weapons, and they would, the, the, they would have, the Romans took it one step better. They used to mold perfectly round spheres out of lead, the size of tennis balls, and that's what they used to use as a weapon. But, but so I figured, well, tennis ball size, so I, uh, I was going to pick like five of them, and stick in my luggage and bring them home. My brother found like 15 of them. He said, no, you gotta take this one. You gotta go with the smooth ones because they're the older ones. <clears throat> and you know, he's going on and on and on. I don't know what they thought in Berenguer Airport, <laughs> except <laughs> we got an American here who's trying to steal Israel one rock at a time. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but this is what it looks like. There's no way that David had the experience. There's no way that David had what it takes to take out that giant who was trained for war. There's nothing in the natural that sees this, and the only thing that fueled David to put, on him, put him on that battlefield facing off this giant is the passion he had for God. And that giant kept calling his God and, 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 and cursing him. And he's saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, this guy don't even have a covenant with us. Who is this guy? And wh wh what is he going to do? Well, what are you going to do, David? All you can swing is a rock. The passion of David got God moved to where, take him on. Take him on. And as soon as that rock left the slingshot, I guarantee you God picked it up with his hand and drove it in the forehead of that giant. David didn't kill that giant. God did. Are you with me? Now, I want to take up the story there because we all know what happens. That man, when he fell, had to sound like an earthquake but he fell like a ton of bricks, excuse the expression. And then David went over. David didn't go on the battlefield. He didn't have everything he needed to do what he's going to do next. That was the enemy that was coming against Israel. David took Goliath's sword, because he didn't have one. He grabbed that 
pulled the helmet off, grabbed that thing by the hair of the head and took his head off with his own sword like that. David kept the armor, kept the sword. And the Bible says he took it and put it in his tent. Well, David didn't have a tent. The tent referring to was the tabernacle. If you know, it was later on when he became, when he was on the, on the run from Saul, uh, he stopped by the priest and they gave him Goliath's sword back. So he had a sword to fight with. Swords were hard to get a hold of at that time, but that's what, how he had. So he put the, he, he gave the armor of that enemy to the, to the church or to the tabernacle and the priests had it in their care. But David took the head and you remember the story. You remember what it says in 1 Samuel 17. He picked up the head and he carried that head to Jerusalem. There's only one problem with that story. The Bible clearly says Jerusalem. Book of Chronicles say Jerusalem. Only the name of the town was not Jerusalem at the time of David. That would come after David's reign. You see, the town, to give you some history on the town of Jerusalem, was called Jebus. Jebus, thank you, Jebus was there because the Jebusites, you remember when Joshua came into the promised land, God says, I want you to take every city that is commanded by the Canaanites, and I want you to expel them, I want you to go in there, and I've given you the land as my promise to Abraham. When Saul was king, that's who we're talking about, because Saul was king when David took on Goliath, he didn't reside in the capital of Israel was not Jerusalem, obviously, because Jerusalem didn't exist at that time. I mean, it existed as a city, but not the name. It was, it, was, it was Gibeah. Why was it Gibeah? Listen to this, because there's a message right in here. Gibeah was Saul's hometown. So Saul's hometown, being the first king of Israel, automatically became the capital. Now David eventually becomes king. Let me fast forward the story a little bit. David becomes king. But David didn't rule his first seven years, not from Jerusalem at all, because Jerusalem wasn't liberated yet. Okay? David ruled from Hebron. Now, you probably won't understand the significance of that until you understand what it means. Gibeon was the back door, of, uh, was, was out uh, Saul's back door. David's, Saul's, David's hometown would have been Bethlehem. He didn't rule from Bethlehem. He ruled from Hebron. What was so special about Hebron? Hebron is where Sarah died and Abraham lived out the rest of his years in Hebron. David was looking for the roots of the covenant even from his rule, not his back door of convenience. And today we're looking for the back door of convenience before we look at the covenant that God has given to us. Go always, always search for the uncompromised word that's being preached today. That's the covenant that you have. This is our covenant. This is not just a fancy book. It's a covenant that God has spelled out for us. I don't have time to get into that, but the fact is, this is what it is. Okay, let me get back to Jebus, or Jabez, how you want to say it. Here's what the Jebusites were. Joshua tried, and he tried, and he tried. Though he took down Jericho and God flattened the walls, God said, this one's yours. I'm not going to intervene. You liberate it. And he tried, and he tried, and he could not liberate it. How many years? 400 years later, David, where, now let me take little David, he's got the head, that giant. When he has the head of that giant, what does he have? He has the mindset and the thoughts of the enemy, and they've been severed. In other words, the mindset and the thoughts of the enemy are no longer in any effect. They no longer have any effect over my life or anybody else's life. And when David did that, he did not free himself. He freed an entire nation. He stood outside the gates of Jerusalem and he held up the head. This big old size of a basketball giant's head. What was he saying? Prophetically, he was looking to the future. That city is mine and you're going to be like this because of my God. 
Why was it so important? Why did David have to go to Jerusalem in his first place? Why not just let him go? Why just leave it alone? That's what they did for 400 years. It worked fine for 400 years. Why are you starting trouble now? Because Jerusalem is the place. Do you remember when Abraham took his son Isaac and was willing to sacrifice him for the Lord? Do you remember when Jesus was crucified in that same spot? That all happened in Jerusalem. And without Jerusalem, he went back to the covenant. The roots of the covenant. The roots of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, because you've obeyed me, he says in Genesis. Because you obeyed me, all your seed will be blessed. Our resources, our blessings are from Abraham. Galatians 3.13 and 14, which is the new covenant. Himself gave himself, Jesus gave himself, that the blessings of Abraham will fall upon the Gentile. That's us, not even the Jew now. That's where the covenant is. So David was from Hebron for seven years. He was king for seven years. He ruled from Hebron. Now, after seven years, he went, okay, now I want Jerusalem. And it became known as the city of David. And what does he do? He, he, he looked at it. He, he wasn't even a good a warrior as Joshua. How come he was able to do that? Because it wasn't the, the, the uh, might of a warrior. It was the cleverness in which God showed him. See, underneath Jerusalem, Diane and I, were, uh, we took the tour through there. But underneath Jerusalem, Old Town Jerusalem, there was a tunnel system and a water supply. And it was a vulnerable place for the enemy to sneak in. Wait till nightfall. Let's go up the tunnels. It's going to lead us right to the middle of the city where, there's, in, in, where the well is. And here we are, because it flows from the city to the outside. It, it gathered in a pool at the lower part of the valley. We just go up there. By the time the Jebusites woke up, say, hey, remember us? <laughs> ones we couldn't take. Ones you could ward off old men and women and children because of your walls. Hello. Here we are. Now. It becomes Jerusalem. But what happened in 1 Samuel 17? Why is it called Jerusalem there? Because this, the prophets and the ones writing it down had the vision already before that and wrote it in as Jerusalem and not Je Jebus. Because Jebus was a Gentile term, was for the Jebusites. And they weren't going to give that accreditation. So in the Bible, we have Jerusalem. Why? Because Abraham knew what the mountains of Salem were. Take your only begotten son. I'll go back to Abraham. Take your only begotten son and take him and sacrifice him there. And to a mountain I will show you. That mountain was Mount Moriah. Okay? In a place of Salem. Or later on, Jerusalem. What made Jerusalem the place they needed to be was Abraham's altar was right there. He laid Isaac. And when he went to take the knife, God says, don't do him any harm. He says, but because of your faithfulness, I will sacrifice my son in that spot. So now David had set that up. He got Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem's the capital of Israel, always will be, never, will never change. It's part of the lineage. But David was the first one to set it up. Fast forward thousands of years, guess what happens? Jesus Christ was died on Calvary in Jerusalem. Guess what else happened in Jerusalem? We just celebrated a couple weeks ago, Pentecost, where God poured out his spirit, Jerusalem. Do you see the significance of Jerusalem? And you see the, why the Jebusites had to be expelled because they were sitting on a holy site that belonged to Israel and belonged to the covenant. David, all his actions were going back to the covenant. Didn't know why I did, but I'm going back to the covenant. I'm not ruling from Bethlehem. I'm ruling from Hebron. That's where Abraham's town was. I'm going to do it from Abraham. We're establishing the covenant because he had such a heart to establish a covenant. God says, okay, you're blessed. You're blessed. Your seed will be blessed. Jesus' lineage will come through that blessing. And I got to stop because I'm, where am I at now? <laughs> you guys got involved. You forgot where I was at, huh? Praise the Lord. I got one minute. You timing me? Raphael, okay, praise the Lord. Raphael says I got one minute. Uh, I still don't have enough time to finish what I was going to finish, so I'll get to it next week, but praise the Lord. Amen. How many know when we're fighting a battle, um, I was going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong. Uh, strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 
not in ours and his. If we're going to fight battles the way our unbelieving neighbors fight battles, we're going to have the same results. But if we fight battles with the weapons of his warfare that are not carnal, as it says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, or 10, sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, amen? amen? Then basically we're going to have different results. We're going to have the results of success. Amen? amen? David was the one he knew. He connected all his victories, because this was later on in, in his life. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. As far as David was concerned, everything centered around his attendance in the house of the Lord. In other words, they said to me, we don't know what behind, behind this song. It's a song of exaltation to the Lord. He says, this is where I find good things. I can say for my own testimony, everything as good that's happened to my life happened to me in church. To pick this up in the world, that's for sure. Because they're confused. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. But God has bringing the truth and revelation to his people, especially in this hour. Amen? Amen? So the word of God can be the place where we can be ignited. In fellowship of church, we have other believers surrounded. We're not by ourselves. Amen. I said, what he said? I've always said this, like Josiah was saying, I said, this church should be more of a family. It's not an organization, a family. Religion made it an organization. <clears throat> God still looks at it as a family. Isn't he our heavenly father? Ours, not mine, not yours, ours. He's our heavenly father. Amen. That depicts relationship. Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. That describes, that describes family. Does it, does it not? Praise the Lord. So if you have a father and the father's over, guess what? We're, we're, this is a family gathering. Now you may not like all the siblings in your natural family, but you're still your siblings. You may not get along with all of them, but they're still your siblings. And guess what? You don't expel from the family because you had a, a tiff with one of your brothers and sisters. Mm, praise the Lord. How are we doing? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Raphael's telling me what to do and where to go. <clears throat> praise the Lord. You feel empowered this morning, Raphael. How <laughs> many got something out of the word this morning? I have more about, let's leave the revelation right there because this would have, I believe it's important this stuff because a lot, of, a lot of people don't understand covenant. A lot of theologians don't understand covenant. But when I saw this, I just, I just picked this up this week where I saw, I, I, put the, I connected the dots. I've always seen it there. Connected the dots. Hebron, Jerusalem, what God told, uh, God has commanded Je, uh, Joshua to take Jebus. Because, and by the way, that's what, he, that's what Joshua called it back then. You can look it up in, his, in, in the book of Joshua. But it says, it says Jebus. Why? See, God had this all planned. Jerusalem was going to be the center because Jerusalem is where uh, his son was going to be crucified. Jerusalem was going to be the place. Amen? And um, it, it, so that was it. So, but sometimes it takes years takes years. Joshua did his best, but he, he, he failed in that particular point. But God didn't hold against him because basically uh, he raised up somebody else. Wasn't even a warrior. He was a shepherd boy. He sang. He had a good voice, I guess, and could play an instrument. Good enough to uh, cast out the demons of Saul. So he, he, he was a powerful individual but in, in his own, but he wasn't a warrior until God got a hold of him. Can I close with this? Be careful what you tell God that you are or you are not. I'm going to say, be cautious not to tell God what you are or what you are not. Because a lot of your insecurities come from what you think you are and what you think you are not. And God will always magnify the things you think you are and make you what you become. For instance, I did not come from my mother being born and say, hallelujah, I'm a preacher. <laughs> Quite the opposite. When I was 18, I left home. I went to tech college. I was an electrician. I was a tradesman. And I says, I told my mother, I says, I'm leaving this house now. And I said, I'm not ever going to church again. I've been drugged by my ear and everything else in church. Forget it. I'll have nothing to do with church from here on in. I'm my own man. 
I got my own job and everything. Of course, those were years ago. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you see how that worked out. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> you see how it worked out? Now, church is everything. I mean, he's had me all around the world. This is this church. I've been to other churches all around, around the world, you know, in different continents, different countries, and so on and so forth, doing his work. Amen. And I, I wouldn't change it for anything. Amen? Amen? Change it for anything. The minister that looks for the big congregations so he can feel good about himself is missing the real purpose. He's missing the real purpose. Like David, when he took on Goliath, he didn't do that for David. He did it for a nation. That's the you got to understand, that was done. God did that, not for David, but for a nation. Can I share this with you just real quick? And then I'm closing. This is my second closing. It's okay. It's an American way. <laughs> but this, this, what God has us here for, God did not call me here to build a church. He called me here to free a city. Amen. And then with the live stream, now we're freeing nations. Our purpose is not to build the church. He's the church. We don't have to build anything. Jesus said he'll build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's great. But my purpose goes beyond these four walls. But God did say, take the city. Push back the powers of darkness in the stronghold of the city. You may never see anything happen in the natural. Again, you may, may. It doesn't matter. I have still been successful at my assignment. Amen. For 33 years, we've prayed against fantasy mess in October. We call it mess. They call it fest. Okay. You notice it was last year that the venue had changed legally. Okay. So though you see little victories here in the natural, that's not what we're focused on. My position here is not so I can walk in prosperity, I can walk in healing. That gives me those things, no doubt. But the fact is, my purpose here, your purpose here, is to take a city. And he also said on, on his flip side, he said, this will be an international ministry. So we, we have been international and we've been everything else. Amen. Let's get our focus on a higher cause than just gathering a few people. Amen. Amen. And I'll tell you what, you'll hit God's purpose every time. He'll be in it. And you'll say, what am I supposed to do with these fish and and this matzah, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? It's not enough for anything. He says, pass it out. It'll become enough. <laughs>